Good evening. Welcome to the Just Sleep Podcast. I'm Tasha, your host. Every week, I will read you an old story to help you relax, put the stressful day behind you, and drift off to sleep. Occasionally, we will run ads in order to cover the costs of the production of the podcast. Rest assured, there will be no ads during or after the story. If you prefer an ad-free and intro-free show, you can join Just Sleep Premium. Visit justsleeppodcast.com slash support for more information. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Tonight. I will be continuing the story, The Blue Castle, by Lucy Maud Montgomery. So lie down, close your eyes, and let me read you a story. Chapter 15 Let us be calm, said Uncle Benjamin. Let us be perfectly calm. Calm? Mrs. Frederick wrung her hands. How can I be calm? How could anybody be calm under such a disgrace as this? Why in the world did you let her go? asked Uncle James. Let her? How could I stop her, James? It seems she packed the big valise and sent it away with Roaring Abel when he went home after supper, while Christine and I were out in the kitchen. Then Doss herself came down with her little satchel, dressed in her green serge suit. I felt a terrible premonition. I can't tell you how it was, but I seemed to know that Doss was going to do something dreadful. It's a pity you couldn't have had your premonition a little sooner, said Uncle Benjamin dryly. I said, Doss, where are you going? And she said, I'm going to look for my blue castle. Wouldn't you think that that would convince Marsh that her mind is affected? Interjected Uncle James. And I said, Valancy, what do you mean? And she said, I'm going to keep house for Roaring Abel and Nurse Sissy. He will pay me $30 a month. 
I wonder I didn't drop dead on the spot. You shouldn't have let her go. You shouldn't have let her out of the house, said Uncle James. You should have locked the door. Anything. She was between me and the door. And you can't realize how determined she was. She was like a rock. That's the strangest thing of all about her. She used to be so good and obedient, and now she's neither to hold nor bind. But I said everything I could think of to bring her to her senses. I asked her if she had no regard for her reputation. I said to her solemnly, Doss, when a woman's reputation is once smirched, nothing can ever make it spotless again. Your character will be gone forever if you go to Roaring Abel's to wait on a bad girl like Sissy Gay. And she said, I don't believe Sissy was a bad girl, but I don't care if she was. Those were her very words. I don't care if she was. She has lost all sense of decency, exploded Uncle Benjamin. Sissy Gay is dying, she said, and it's a shame and disgrace that she is dying in a Christian community with no one to do anything for her. Whatever she's been or done, she's a human being. Well, you know, when it comes to that, I suppose she is, said Uncle James, with the air of one making a splendid concession. I asked Doss if she had no regard for appearances, she said. I've been keeping up appearances all my life. Now I'm going in for realities. Appearances can go hang. Go hang. An outrageous thing, said Uncle Benjamin violently. An outrageous thing. Which relieved his feelings, but did not help anyone else. Mrs. Frederick wept. Cousin Stickles took up the refrain between her moans of despair. I told her, we both told her, that Roaring Abel had certainly killed his wife in one of his drunken rages and would kill her. She laughed and said, I'm not afraid of Roaring Abel. He won't kill me. And he's too old for me to be afraid of his gallantries. What did she mean? What are gallantries? Mrs. Frederick saw that she must stop crying if she wanted to regain control of the conversation. I said to her, Valancy, if you have no regard for your own reputation and your family's standing, have you none for my feelings? She said, none. Just like that, none. Insane people never do have any regard for other people's feelings, said Uncle Benjamin. That's one of the symptoms. I broke out into tears then, and she said, Come now, mother, be a good sport. I'm going to do an act of Christian charity. And as for the damage it will do to my reputation, why, you know, I haven't any matrimonial chances anyhow, so what does it matter? And with that, she turned and went out. The last words I said to her, said Cousin Stickles pathetically, were, Who will rub my back at nights now? And she said, She said, But no, I cannot repeat it. Nonsense, said Uncle Benjamin, out with it. This is no time to be squeamish. She said, Cousin Stickles' voice was a little more than a whisper. She said, Oh, darn. To think I should have lived to hear my daughter swearing, sobbed Mrs. Frederick. It, it was only imitation swearing, faltered Cousin Stickles, desirous of smoothing things over now that the worst was out. But she had never told about the banister. It will be only a step from that to real swearing, said Uncle James sternly. The worst of this, Mrs. Frederick hunted for a dry spot on her handkerchief, is that everyone will now know that she is deranged. We can't keep it a secret any longer. Oh, I can't bear it. You should have been stricter with her when she was young, said Uncle Benjamin. I don't see how I could have been, said Mrs. Frederick, 
truthfully enough. The worst feature of the case is that that snaith scoundrel is always hanging around Roaring Abel's, said Uncle James. I shall be thankful if nothing worse comes of this mad freak than a few weeks at Roaring Abel's. Sissy Gay can't live much longer. And she didn't even take her flannel petticoat, lamented Cousin Stickles. I'll see Ambrose Marsh again about this, said Uncle Benjamin, meaning Valency, not the flannel petticoat. I'll see Lawyer Ferguson, said Uncle James. Meanwhile, added Uncle Benjamin, let us be calm. Chapter 16 Valency had walked out to Roaring Abel's house on the Mistawas Road, under a sky of purple and amber, with a strange exhilaration and expectancy in her heart. Back there, behind her, her mother and Cousin Stickles were crying, over themselves, not over her. But here, the wind was in her face, soft, dew-wet, cool, blowing along the grassy roads. Oh, she loved the wind. The robins were whistling sleepily in the firs along the way, and the moist air was fragrant with a tang of balsam. Big cars went purring past in the violet dusk. The stream of summer tourists in Muskoka had already begun, but Valency did not envy any of their occupants. Muskoka cottages might be charming, but beyond, in the sunset skies, among the spires of the firs, her blue castle towered. She brushed the old years and habits and inhibitions away from her like dead leaves. She would not be littered with them. Roaring Abel's rambling, tumble-down old house was situated about three miles from the village, on the very edge of Up Back, as the sparsely settled, hilly, wooded country around Mistawas was called vernacularly. It did not, it must be confessed, look much like a blue castle. It had once been a snug place enough in the days when Abel Gay had been young and prosperous, and the punning arched sign over the gate, A. Gay Carpenter, had been fine and freshly painted. Now it was a faded, dreary old place, with a leprous patched roof and shutters hanging askew. Abel never seemed to do any carpenter jobs about his own house. It had a listless air, as if tired of life. There was a dwindling grove of ragged, crone-like old spruces behind it. The garden, which Sissy used to keep neat and pretty, had gone wild. On two sides of the house were fields full of nothing but mullanes. Behind the house was a long stretch of useless barrens, full of scrub pines and spruces, with here and there a blossoming bit of wild cherry, running back to a belt of timber on the shores of Lake Mistawas, two miles away. A rough, rocky, boulder-strewn lane ran through it to the woods, a lane white with pestiferous, beautiful daisies. Roaring Abel met Valency at the door. So you've come, he said incredulously. I never supposed that ruck of starlings would let you. Valency showed all her pointed teeth in a grin. They couldn't stop me. I didn't think you'd so much spunk, said Roaring Abel admiringly. And look at the nice ankles of her, he added, as he stepped aside to let her in. If Cousin Stickles had heard this, she would have been certain that Valency's doom, earthly and unearthly, was sealed. But Abel's superannuated gallantry did not worry Valency. Besides, this was the first compliment she had ever received in her life, and she found herself liking it. She sometimes suspected she had nice ankles, 
but nobody had ever mentioned it before. And the Sterling clan ankles were among the unmentionables. Roaring Abel took her into the kitchen, where Sissy Gay was lying on the sofa, breathing quickly, with a little scarlet spot on her hollow cheeks. Valancy had not seen Cecilia Gay for years. Then she had been such a pretty creature, a slight, blossom-like girl, with soft golden hair, clear-cut almost, waxen features, and large, beautiful blue eyes. She was shocked at the change in her. Could this be sweet Sissy? This pitiful little thing that looks like a tired, broken flower? She had wept all the beauty out of her eyes. They looked too big, enormous in her wasted face. The last time Valancy had seen Cecilia Gay, those faded, piteous eyes had been limpid, shadowy, blue pools aglow with mirth. The contrast was so terrible that Valancy's own eyes filled with tears. She knelt down by Sissy and put her arms about her. Sissy, dear, I've come to look after you. I'll stay with you till... till as long as you want me. Oh. Sissy put her thin arms about Valancy's neck. Oh, will you? It's been so lonely. I can wait on myself, but it's been so lonely. It would be just like heaven to have someone here, like you. You were always so sweet to me long ago. Valancy held Sissy close. She was suddenly happy. Here was someone who needed her. Someone she could help. She was no longer a superfluity. Old things had passed away. Everything had become new. Most things are predestinated, but some are just darn share luck, said Roaring Abel, complacently smoking his pipe in the corner. Chapter 17 When Valancy had lived for a week at Roaring Abel's, she felt as if years had separated her from her old life and all the people she had known in it. They were beginning to seem remote, dreamlike, far away. And as the days went on, they seemed still more so until they ceased to matter altogether. She was happy. Nobody ever bothered her with conundrums or insisted on giving her purple pills. Nobody called her Doss or worried her about catching cold. There were no quilts to piece, no abominable rubber plant to water, no ice-cold maternal tantrums to endure. She could be alone whenever she liked, go to bed when she liked, sneeze when she liked. In the long, wondrous northern twilights, when Sissy was asleep and roaring Abel away, she could sit for hours in the shaky back veranda steps, looking out over the barrens to the hills beyond, covered with their fine purple bloom, listening to the friendly wind singing wild, sweet melodies in the little spruces, and drinking in the aroma of the sunned grasses, until darkness flowed over the landscape like a cool welcome wave. Sometimes of an afternoon when Sissy was strong enough, the two girls went into the barrens and looked at the wood flowers, but they did not pick any. Valancy had read to Sissy the gospel thereof according to John Foster. It is a pity to gather wood flowers. They lose half their witchery away from the green and the flicker. The way to enjoy wood flowers is to track them down to their remote haunts, gloat over them, and then leave them with backward glances, taking with us only the beguiling memory of their fragrance and grace. 
Valency was in the midst of realities after a lifetime of unrealities, and busy, very busy. The house had to be cleaned. Not for nothing had Valency been brought up in the sterling habits of neatness and cleanliness. If she found satisfaction in cleaning dirty rooms, she got her fill of it there. Roaring Abel thought she was foolish to bother doing so much more than she was asked to, but he did not interfere with her. He was very well satisfied with his bargain. Valency was a good cook. Abel said she got a flavor into things. The only fault he found with her was that she did not sing at her work. Folks should always sing at their work, he insisted. Sounds cheerful like. Not always, retorted Valency. Fancy a butcher singing at his work. Or an undertaker. Abel burst into his great broad laugh. There's no getting the better of you. You've got an answer every time. I should think the Sterlings would be glad to be rid of you. They don't like to be sassed back. During the day, Abel was generally away from home, if not working, then shooting or fishing with Barney Snaith. He generally came home at nights, always very late and often very drunk. The first night they heard him come howling into the yard. Sissy had told Valency not to be afraid. Father never does anything. He just makes a noise. Valency, lying on the sofa in Sissy's room, where she had elected to sleep, lest Sissy should need attention in the night. Sissy would never have called her. Was not at all afraid, and said so. By the time Abel had got his horses put away, the roaring stage had passed, and he was in his room at the end of the hall, crying and praying. Valency could still hear his dismal moans when she went calmly to sleep. For the most part, Abel was a good-natured creature, but occasionally he had a temper. Once Valency asked him coolly, what is the use of getting in a rage? It's such a darned relief, said Abel. They both burst out laughing together. You're a great little sport, said Abel admiringly. Don't mind my bad French. I don't mean a thing by it, just habit. Say, I like a woman that ain't afraid to speak to me. Sis there was always too meek, too meek. That's why she got adrift. I like you. All the same, said Valency determinedly, there's no use in sending things to hell as you're always doing. And I'm not going to have you tracking mud all over the floor I've just scrubbed. You must use the scraper whether you consign it to perdition or not. Sissy loved the cleanness and neatness. She'd kept it so till her strength failed. She was very pitifully happy because she had Valency with her. It had been so terrible, the long, Lonely days and nights with no companionship, save those dreadful old women who came to work. Sissy had hated and feared them. She clung to Valency like a child. There was no doubt that Sissy was dying, yet at no time did she seem alarmingly ill. She did not even cough a great deal. Most days she was able to get up and dress, sometimes even to work about in the garden or the barrens for an hour or two. For a few weeks after Valency's coming, she seemed so much better that Valency began to hope she might get well. But Sissy shook her head. No, I can't get well. My lungs are almost gone. And I don't want to. I'm so tired, Valency. Only dying can rest me. But it's lovely to have you here. You never know how much it means to me. But Valency, you work too hard. You don't need to. Father only wants his meals cooked. I don't think you're strong yourself. You turn so pale sometimes, and those drops you take. Are you well, dear? I'm all right, said Valency lightly. 
she would not have Sissy worried. And I'm not working hard. I'm glad to have some work to do, something that really wants to be done. Then, Sissy slipped her hand wistfully into Valancy's. Don't let's talk any more about my being sick. Let's just forget it. Let's pretend I'm a little girl again, and you've come here to play with me. I used to wish that long ago, wish that you'd come. I knew you couldn't, of course, but how I did wish it. You always seem so different from the other girls, so kind and sweet. And as if you had something in yourself nobody knew about, some dear pretty secret. Had you, Valency? I had my blue castle, said Valency, laughing a little. She was pleased that Sissy had thought of her like this. She had never suspected that anybody liked or admired or wondered about her. She told Sissy all about her blue castle. She had never told anyone about it before. Everyone has a blue castle, I think, said Sissy softly. Only everyone has a different name for it. I had mine. Once. She put her two thin little hands over her face. She did not tell Valency then who had destroyed her blue castle. But Valency knew that whoever it was, it was not Barney Snaith. Chapter 18 Valency was acquainted with Barney by now, well acquainted it seemed, though she had spoken to him only a few times. But then she had felt just as well acquainted with him the first time they had met. She had been in the garden at twilight, hunting for a few stalks of white narcissus for Sissy's room, when she heard that terrible old grey slosson coming down through the woods from Mistawis. One could hear it miles away. Valancy did not look up as it drew near, thumping over the rocks in that crazy lane. She had never looked up, though Barney Snaith had gone racketing past every evening since she had been at Roaring Abel's. This time, he did not racket past. The old grey slosson stopped with even more terrible noises than it made going. Valancy was conscious that Barney had sprung from it and was leaning over the ramshackle gate. She suddenly straightened up and looked into his face. Their eyes met. Valancy was suddenly conscious of a delicious weakness. Was one of her heart attacks coming on? But this was a new symptom. His eyes, which she had always thought brown, now seen close were deep violet, translucent and intense. Neither of his eyebrows looked like the other. He was thin, too thin. She wished she could feed him up a bit. She wished she could sew the buttons on his coat and make him cut his hair and shave every day. There was something in his face, one hardly knew what it was. Tiredness? Sadness? Disillusionment? He had dimples in his thin cheeks when he smiled. All these thoughts flashed through Valancy's mind in that one moment while his eyes looked into hers. Good evening, Miss Sterling. Nothing could be more commonplace and conventional. Anyone might have said it. But Barney Snaith had a way of saying things that gave them poignancy. When he said good evening, you felt that it was a good evening, and that it was partly his doing that it was. Also, you felt that some of the credit was yours. Valancy felt all this vaguely, but she couldn't imagine why she was trembling from head to foot. It must be her heart. If only he didn't notice it. I'm going over to the port, Barney was saying. Can I acquire merit by getting or doing anything there for you, or Sissy? Will you get some salt codfish for us, said Valancy. It was the only thing she could think of. 
Roaring Abel had expressed a desire that day for a dinner of boiled salt codfish. When her knights came riding to the Blue Castle, Valency had sent them on many a quest. But she had never asked any of them to get her salt codfish. Certainly. You're sure there's nothing else? Lots of room in Lady Jane Grace Slosen. And she always gets back sometime, does Lady Jane. I don't think there's anything more, said Valency. She knew he would bring oranges for Sissy anyhow, he always did. Barney did not turn away at once. He was silent for a little. Then he said, slowly and whimsically, Miss Sterling, you're a brick. You're a whole cartload of bricks. To come here and look after Sissy? Under the circumstances. There's nothing so bricky about that, said Valency, and nothing else to do. And I like it here. I don't feel as if I'd done anything especially meritorious. Mr. Gay's paying me fair wages. I never earned any money before, and I like it. It seemed so easy to talk to Barney Snaith, some way. This terrible Barney Snaith of the lurid tales and mysterious past. As easy and natural as if talking to herself. All the money in the world couldn't buy what you're doing for Sissy Gay, said Barney. It's splendid and fine of you. And if there's anything I can do to help you in any way, you have only to let me know. If Roaring Abel ever tries to annoy you, he doesn't. He's lovely to me. I like Roaring Abel, said Valency frankly. So do I. But there's one stage of his drunkenness, perhaps you haven't encountered it yet, when he sings ribald songs. Oh yes, he came home last night like that. Sissy and I just went to our room and shut ourselves in where we couldn't hear him. He apologized this morning. I'm not afraid of any of Roaring Abel's stages. Well, I'm sure he'll be decent to you, apart from his inebriated yowls, said Barney. And I've told him he's got to stop damning things when you're around. Why? asked Valancy slyly, with one of her odd slatted glances and a sudden flake of pink on each cheek, born of the thought that Barney Snaith had actually done so much for her. I often feel like damning things myself. For a moment, Barney stared. Was this elfin girl the little, old, maidish creature who had stood there two minutes ago? Surely there was magic and devilry going on in that shabby, weedy old garden. Then he laughed. It would be relief to have someone to do it for you then. So you don't want anything but salt codfish? Not tonight, but I dare say I'll have some errands for you very often when you go to Port Lawrence. I can't trust Mr. Gay to remember to bring all the things I want. Barney had gone away then, in his Lady Jane, and Valancy stood in the garden for a long time. Since then he had called several times, walking down through the barrens, whistling. How that whistle of his echoed through the spruces on those June twilights. Valancy caught herself listening for it every evening, rebuked herself, and let herself go. Why shouldn't she listen for it? He always brought Sissy fruit and flowers. Once he brought Valency a box of candy, the first box of candy she had ever been given. It seemed sacrilege to eat it. She found herself thinking of him in season and out of season. She wanted to know if he ever thought about her when she wasn't before his eyes, and if so, what? She wanted to see that mysterious house of his back on the Mistawas Island. Sissy had never seen it. Sissy? though she talked freely of Barney and had known him for five years, really knew little more of him than Valancy herself. But he isn't bad, 
said Sissy. Nobody need ever tell me he is. He can't have done a thing to be ashamed of. Then why does he live as he does, asked Valancy, to hear somebody defend him. I don't know. He's a mystery. And of course, there's something behind it, but I know it isn't disgrace. Barney Snaith simply couldn't do anything disgraceful, Valancy. Valancy wasn't so sure. Barney must have done something, sometime. He was a man of education and intelligence. She had soon discovered that, in listening to his conversations and wrangles with Roaring Abel, who was surprisingly well-read and could discuss any subject under the sun when sober. Such a man wouldn't bury himself for five years in Muskoka and live and look like a tramp if there were not too good or bad a reason for it. But it didn't matter. All that mattered was that she was now sure that he had never been Sissy Gay's lover. There was nothing like that between them. Though he was very fond of Sissy, and she of him, as anyone could see. But it was a fondness that didn't worry Valancy. You don't know what Barney has been to me these past two years, Sissy had said simply. Everything would have been unbearable without him. Sissy Gay is the sweetest girl I ever knew. And there's a man somewhere I'd like to shoot if I could find him, Barney had said savagely. Barney was an interesting talker with a knack of telling a great deal about his adventures and nothing at all about himself. There was one glorious rainy day when Barney and Abel swapped yarns all the afternoon while Valancy mended tablecloths and listened. Barney told weird tales of his adventures with shacks on trains while hoboying it across the continent. Valancy thought she ought to think his stealing rides quite dreadful, but didn't. The story of his working his way to England on a cattle ship sounded more legitimate. And as the yarns of the Yukon enthralled her, especially the one of the night he was lost on the divide between the Gold Run and Sulphur Valley. He had spent two years out there. Where in all this was there room for the penitentiary and the other things? If he were telling the truth. But Valancy knew he was. Found no gold, he said. Came away poorer than I went. But such a place to live. Those silences at the back of the north wind got me. I've never belonged to myself since. Yet he was not a great talker. He told a great deal in a few well-chosen words. How well-chosen, Valancy did not realize. And he had a knack of saying things without opening his mouth at all. I like a man whose eyes say more than his lips, thought Valancy. But then she liked everything about him. His tawny hair, his whimsical smiles, the little glints of fun in his eyes his loyal affection for that unspeakable Lady Jane, his habit of sitting with his hands in his pockets, his chin sunk on his breast, looking up from under his mismated eyebrows. She liked his nice voice, which sounded as if it might become caressing or wooing with very little provocation. She was at times almost afraid to let herself think these thoughts. They were so vivid that she felt as if the others must know what she was thinking. I've been watching a woodpecker all day, he said one evening on the shaky old back veranda. His account of the woodpecker's doings was satisfying. He had often some cunning little anecdote of the wood folk to tell them. And sometimes he and Roaring Abel smoked fiercely the whole evening and never said a word, while Sissy lay in the hammock swung between the veranda posts and Valancy sat idly on the steps, her hands clasped over her knees, and wandered dreamily 
if she were really Valency Sterling. And if it were only three weeks since she had left the ugly old house on Elm Street. The barrens lay before her in a white moon splendor, where dozens of little rabbits frisked. Barney, when he liked, could sit down on the edge of the barrens and lure those rabbits right to him by some mysterious sorcery he possessed. Valency had once seen a squirrel leap from a scrub pine to his shoulder and sit there chattering to him. It reminded her of John Foster. It was one of the delights of Valency's new life that she could read John Foster's books as often and as long as she wanted to. She read them all to Sissy, who loved them. She also read them to Abel and Barney, who did not love them. Abel was bored, and Barney politely refused to listen at all. Piffle, said Barney. Chapter 19 Of course, the Sterlings had not left the poor maniac alone all this time, or refrained from heroic efforts to rescue her perishing soul and reputation. Uncle James, whose lawyer had helped him as little as his doctor, came one day, and finding Valancy alone in the kitchen, as he supposed, gave her a terrible talking to, told her she was breaking her mother's heart and disgracing her family. But why, said Valancy, not ceasing to scour her porridge pot decently. I'm doing honest work for honest pay. What is there in that that is disgraceful? Don't quibble, Valancy, said Uncle James solemnly. This is no fit place for you to be, and you know it. Why, I'm told that that jailbird, Snaith, is hanging around here every evening. Not every evening, said Valancy reflectively. No, not quite every evening. It's, it's insufferable, said Uncle James violently. Valancy, you must come home. We won't judge you harshly. I assure you we won't. We will overlook all this. Thank you, said Valancy. Have you no sense of shame? demanded Uncle James. Oh, yes. Though the things I am ashamed of are not the things you are ashamed of. Valancy proceeded to rinse her dishcloth meticulously. Still was Uncle James patient. He gripped the sides of his chair and ground his teeth. We know your mind isn't just right. We'll make allowances, but you must come home. You shall not stay here with that drunken, blasphemous old scoundrel. Were you by any chance referring to me, Mr. Sterling? demanded Roaring Abel, suddenly appearing in the doorway of the back veranda where he had been smoking a peaceful pipe and listening to old Jim Sterling's tirade with huge enjoyment. His red beard fairly bristled with indignation and his huge eyebrows quivered. But cowardice was not among James Sterling's shortcomings. I was. And furthermore, I want to tell you that you've acted an iniquitous part in luring this weak and unfortunate girl away from her home and friends, and I will have you punished for it. James Sterling got no further. Roaring Abel crossed the kitchen at a bound, caught him by his collar and his trousers, and hurled him through the doorway and over the garden paling with as little apparent effort as he might have employed in whisking a troublesome kitten out of the way. The next time you come back here, he bellowed, I'll throw you through the window. And all the better if the window is shut. Come here thinking yourself God put the world to rights. Valancy candidly and unashamedly owned to herself that she had seen few more satisfying sights than Uncle James' coattails flying out into the asparagus bed. She had once been afraid of this man's judgment, 
Now she saw clearly that he was nothing but a rather stupid little village ten-god. Roaring Abel turned with his great broad laugh. He'll think of that for years when he wakes up in the night. The Almighty made a mistake in making so many sterlings. But since they are made, we've got to reckon with them. Too many to kill out. But if they come here bothering you, I'll shoo them off before a cat could lick its ear. The next time, they sent Dr. Stalling. Surely Roaring Abel would not throw him into asparagus beds. Dr. Stalling was not so sure of this and had no great liking for the task. He did not believe Valency Sterling was out of her mind. She'd always been strange. He, Dr. Stalling, had never been able to understand her. Therefore, beyond doubt, she was strange. She was only just a little stranger than usual now. And Dr. Stalling had his own reasons for disliking Roaring Abel. When Dr. Stalling had first come to Darewood, he had had a liking for long hikes around Mistawas and Muskoka. And on one of these occasions, he had got lost, and after much wandering had fallen in with Roaring Abel with his gun over his shoulder. Dr. Stalling had contrived to ask his question in about the most idiotic manner possible. He said, Can you tell me where I'm going? How the devil should I know where you're going, Gosling? retorted Abel contemptuously. Dr. Stalling was so enraged that he could not speak for a moment or two, and in that moment, Abel had disappeared in the woods. Dr. Stalling had eventually found his way home, but he had never hankered to encounter Abel Gay again. Nevertheless, he came now to do his duty. Valency greeted him with a sinking heart. She had to own to herself that she was terribly afraid of Dr. Stalling still. She had a miserable conviction that if he shook his long bony finger at her and told her to go home, she dared not disobey. Mr. Gay, said Dr. Stalling politely and condescendingly, may I see Miss Sterling alone for a few minutes? Roaring Abel was a little drunk, just drunk enough to be excessively polite and very cunning. He had been on the point of going away when Dr. Stalling arrived, but now he sat down in a corner of the parlour and folded his arms. No, no, mister, he said solemnly. That won't do. Won't do at all. I've got the reputation of my household to keep up. I've got to chaperone this young lady. Can't have any sparking going on here behind my back. Outraged, Dr. Starling looked so terrible that Valancy wondered how Abel could endure his aspect. But Abel was not worried at all. Do you know anything about it anyway? He asked genially. About what? Sparking, said Abel coolly. Poor Dr. Stalling, who had never married because he believed in a celibate clergy, would not notice this ribald remark. He turned his back on Abel and addressed himself to Valancy. Miss Sterling, I am here in response to your mother's wishes. She begged me to come. I am charged with some messages from her. Will you? He wagged his forefinger. Will you hear them? Yes, said Valancy faintly, eyeing the forefinger. It had a hypnotic effect on her. The first is this. If you will leave this, this house, interjected Roaring Abel, H-O-U-S-E, troubled with an impediment in your speech, ain't you, mister? This place, and return to your home, Mr. James Sterling will himself pay for a good nurse to come here and wait on Miss Gay. Back of her terror, Valancy smiled in secret. Uncle James must indeed regard the matter as desperate when he would loosen his purse strings like that. At any rate, her clan no longer despised her or ignored her.
she had become important to them. That's my business, mister, said Abel. Miss Sterling can go as she pleases, or stay if she pleases. I made a fair bargain with her, and she's free to conclude it when she likes. She gives me meals that stick to my ribs. She don't forget to put salt in the porridge. She never slams doors. And when she has nothing to say, she don't talk. That's uncanny in a woman, you know, mister. I'm satisfied. If she isn't, she's free to go. But no woman comes in here in Jim Sterling's pay. If anybody does, Abel's voice was uncannily bland and polite. I'll spatter the road with her brains. Tell him that with a gaze compliments. Dr. Sterling, a nurse is not what Sissy needs, said Valancy earnestly. She isn't so ill as that yet. What she wants is companionship, somebody she knows and likes just to live with her. You can understand that, I'm sure. I understand that your motive is quite <clears throat> commendable. Dr. Stalling felt that he was very broad-minded indeed, especially as in his secret soul he did not believe Valancy's motive was commendable. He hadn't the least idea what she was up to, but he was sure her motive was not commendable. When he could not understand a thing, he straightaway condemned it. Simplicity itself. But your first duty is to your mother. She needs you. She implores you to come home. She will forgive everything if you will only come home. That's a pretty little thought, remarked Abel meditatively, as he ground some tobacco up in his hand. Dr. Stalling ignored him. She entreats. But I, Miss Sterling, Dr. Stalling remembered that he was an ambassador of Jehovah. I command. As your pastor and spiritual guide, I command you to come home with me this very day. Get your hat and coat and come now. Dr. Stalling shook his finger at Valancy. Before that pitiless finger, she drooped and wilted visibly. She's giving in, thought Roaring Abel. She'll go with him. Beats all the power these preacher fellows have over women. Valancy was on the point of obeying Dr. Stalling. She must go home with him and give up. She would lapse back to Doss Sterling again and for her few remaining days or weeks be the cowed, futile creature she'd always been. It was her fate, typified by that relentless, uplifted forefinger. She could no more escape from it than roaring Abel from his predestination. She eyed it as the fascinated bird eyes the snake. Another moment. Fair is the original sin, suddenly, said a still, small voice away, back, back, back of Valancy's consciousness. Almost all the evil in the world has its origin in the fact that someone is afraid of something. Valancy stood up. She was still in the clutches of fear, but her soul was her own again. She would not be false to that inner voice. Dr. Stalling, she said slowly, I do not at present owe any duty to my mother. She is quite well. She has all the assistance and companionship she requires. She does not need me at all. I am needed here. I'm going to stay here. There, Spunk, for you, said Roaring Abel, admiringly. Dr. Stalling dropped his forefinger. One could not keep on shaking a finger forever. Miss Darling, is there nothing that can influence you? Do you remember your childhood days? Perfectly, and I hate them. Do you realize what people will say, what they are saying? I can imagine it, said Valancy, with a shrug of her shoulders. She was suddenly free of fear again. I haven't listened to the gossip of Darewood tea parties and sewing circles twenty years for nothing, 
Dr. Stalling, it doesn't matter to me in the least what they say. Not in the least. Dr. Stalling went away then. A girl who cared nothing for public opinion, over whom sacred family ties had no restraining influence, who hated her childhood memories. Then cousin Georgiana came, on her own initiative, for nobody would have thought it worthwhile to send her. She found Valency alone, weeding the little vegetable garden she had planted, and she made all the platitudinous pleas she could think of. Valency heard her patiently. Cousin Georgiana wasn't such a bad old soul. Then she said, And now that you have got all that out of your system, Cousin Georgiana, can you tell me how to make creamed codfish so that it will not be as thick as porridge and as salt as the Dead Sea? We will just have to wait, said Uncle Benjamin. After all, Sissy Gay can't live long. Dr. Marsh tells me she may drop off any day. Mrs. Frederick wept. It would really have been so much easier to bear if Valency had died. She could have worn mourning then. Good night.